On this episode, we discuss the joke thief. More like the time thief. (laughs) (laughs) That last noise is what really sold it. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flophouse. I'm Dan McCoy. Oh, hey there, Dan. It's me, Stuart Wellington. Hey guys. Hey Dan. Hey Stu. Hey listeners. It's me, Elliot Kalen, the last one of the threesome. I'm uh, the one that makes it a trio, triplets, if you will, a mm-hmm. tricycle. You know, from Belleville, triplets and so forth. Three triceratops. Mm-hmm. If uh-huh. we were horns, that's the dinosaur we'd be on. Mm-hmm. Thanks for explaining the number three. You would be the Holy Ghost if I was the kid. <laughs> yeah, the kid, yeah. The it's the dad, the, the kid, kid, and the Holy Ghost. Yeah. <laughs> I think the Trinity, I think, is the dad, Disney's the kid, and the Holy Ghost. Oh, man. DVD or digital streaming? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, streaming on Disney Plus. Coming yeah. soon. Oh, wow. Now, was that. Uh, we, getting uh, any, uh, we getting any nuggets from that plug? Is that <laughs> to distinguish it from the, the old movie, The Kid? <laughs> Charlie Chaplin's the kid. I have yeah. to assume so. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Was uh was Bruce Willis in that too? <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> uh, so guys, he was just a tiny little egg in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a podcast where we watch a bad movie and then we talk about it. And uh-huh. oh boy, we're into theme month season. Oh, and man. by season I mean two months that are back to back. Yep. So just uh, grab this episode. Yeah. And, then, and then there's cage mist. We skip over. There's no real theme in. November, but sorry. What were you yeah, saying? yeah. So this is the type of month where you just grab onto that episode, drag it over to your garbage bin, and hit <laughs> recycle. Everyone, no, these are everyone's favorite episodes. The theme, the theme episodes. So Dan, what what's the theme of this month? This is a uh, small. Or as you would say, as you would say, based on your Twitter-based understanding of roller coasters, the premise of this month. <laughs> Okay. Well, yeah. that's a reference to an argument Dan and I had over Twitter over whether Space Mountain had a premise or a theme. <laughs> Uh, I'm glad that I'm glad that in addition to our two hour podcast, we're giving listeners homework to go check out on Twitter.com. <laughs> well, that's like that's uh, that's like there's a little asterisk next to it that says like see Dan's Twitter feed, smile and Stan, like mm-hmm. you'd see in old Marvel comics. Yeah, we should do it more like Marvel comics. There should be like a bunch of interlocking things, and you have to collect all the different uh, ones to really understand. It's called the a crossover. Story. It's called a crossover. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm just describing how they connect. They interlock. I wasn't. It's not like I'm yeah. unfamiliar with the what, idea what you of a would crossover. Do is you would take the Marvel comics back in the day and you'd fold them into I don't know, like lion-shaped robots, and then <laughs> okay. you would mm-hmm. tape them together into a giant <laughs> robot man who has a sword. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, what was I explaining? Oh, this is small What's the timber. Theme? Uh, this is small Vember. Small Timber. Um, small Vember. It, it's where we watch smaller movies. Uh-huh. Uh, normally, we like, like physically, to... like it's uh, like a little <laughs> mini disc. Well, kind of. It's, it's kind on the of head like... of a pin. Normally, we are the Davids uh, fighting Hollywood's Goliath, and this is the one month where we get to punch a baby. What? <laughs> 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 small movies that uh, you know, you know. Yeah, yeah. We 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 punch down. Yeah, we're punching. We're down. bringing them to the audience's attention just to tell them how bad they are. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for <laughs> the first movie in the month, we're returning to the Frank D'Angelo well. 
Uh-huh. Uh, one of our favorite bad auteurs. Elliot, can you give us a quick breakdown on who Frank D'Angelo is? So Frank D'Angelo, as longtime listeners may know, and most other people won't know unless you live in Toronto, uh, Frank D'Angelo is a Toronto-based beverage magnate mm-hmm. who and, has And restaurateur. And what? And restaurateur. Yeah, although I, th- I think his restaurant got closed, right? Uh, I mean, it's featured prominently in this movie, but oh, yeah, okay. it's probably closed. I, no, I think it's I think it did close. I don't he, know. Well, he had more than one restaurant. Uh, I okay. the the In Your Ear Supper Club or whatever it was called, the Forget the, About It Supper Forget Club, about it Supper about Club it which Supper is Club, yeah, yeah, where this was shot most of it. Yeah, that's that's one of them. But also, uh, he has attempted to turn himself into a media mogul. In Canada, uh-huh. he was the host of a television show, uh, and he writes, directs, produces, I think r- does the music for, and maybe even edits and stars in his own films. Uh-huh. Uh, and so we've done a couple of his No Deposit we did, a Sicilian Vampire we did. Now, mm-hmm. usually one of his calling cards is he takes you know, semi-retired elderly movie stars and pays them to appear in what they think are going to be real movies. This one, there's not that much of that. Yeah, there's just a bald one. There's, there's not that much movie. And I was like, the whole time I was watching it, I was like, this is the movie that got an eight-minute standing ovation at the Venice Film Festival? Like, this is the one everyone's <laughs> yeah. talking about on social yeah, media, yeah. the joke thief? Yeah, it got, like, the, I, uh, got the golden lion as of yesterday. Speaking of which, there are uh, two reviews linked from uh, IMDb mm-hmm. of this movie. The first one is, like, you know, a pretty uh, soft review in the movie. Liked it well enough. Had a few... Uh, interesting pieces of information and like that it was shot at the Forget About Supper Club in, I believe, two days this movie was taken, they they took to shoot this. According oh, to I mean, that, does, that is, it looks like it was shot in one day. So <laughs> it's not the, that uh, much of an achievement. And the other review is a ridiculously, absurdly glowing one that uh-huh. uh, I assume is the result of a bribe or something that Frank D'Angelo wrote under an assumed name mm-hmm. or something Or a family that. member. Yeah. Yeah, all reviews uh, with the initials NB are the work of Neil Breen. <laughs> uh, so, guys, uh, the things here are the things that you know about Frank D'Angelo in all of his movies that we've seen so far is each of Frank D'Angelo's movies, no matter if they're a horror film about a vampire or a drama about a man who's down on his luck, or in this case, a comedy drama, I'm not sure, about a comedian— the main theme of them is that Frank D'Angelo is the greatest guy in the world and everybody loves him and people mm-hmm. will do anything for Frank D'Angelo. Yeah. And he really plays with that persona in this movie in interesting, and by interesting I mean not well thought through ways. Yeah, baffling I, ways that undercut the message of the film. What I love <laughs> what I love is he always hires all these actors who are constantly like trying to get him to do things and telling him how great he is. And he's always like, I don't have time for this. Why are you bothering me? <laughs> Don't skip to the bloops. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> granted, like this is a movie where the first twenty minutes is like at least fifteen minutes of phone calls. But <laughs> <laughs> well, he does. A, he has a lot of his movies often start with phone calls with him catching up on the other characters. So let's just get into the movie, huh? We mm-hmm. open up with a this is something new for Frank D'Angelo kind of time passing montage as we watch a boy with slicked back hair in a leather jacket practicing kind of borscht belt crap jokes in front of a mirror and dissolving into an older version of himself and then an mm-hmm. even older version of himself and then finally Frank D'Angelo who has been apparently for years practicing the same jokes in the same clothes in front of the same mirror yeah uh-huh. his and whole this life. is sorry this is the first thing I want to object to because 
while are you objecting to the fact that he said dissolving because his body doesn't like <laughs> dis you know disincorporate well, and no then it's not it's not like in the remember the time video when Michael Jackson turns into sand it's that's, not like that Stuart. that's my first objection my second objection is although we will see some things later on that resemble traditional stand up comedy uh-huh. uh, Frank D'Angelo for his character seems to believe that stand up is telling. You know, street jokes or or joke book jokes. Joke book jokes. He tells a Polish joke. Like he's his whole his whole act throughout the film, and it's weird that so this movie is uh, there's a lot of filler. There's as I was saying to Dan and Stewart when I watched it, this is probably the least amount of movie I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, It somehow is maybe seven tenths filler at eighty seven minutes long, and Mm -hmm. a lot of the movie is just footage of stand ups doing their acts. But then you have Frank D'Angelo, whose act yeah is entirely. Joke book jokes. Yeah, like if it's if, blonde jokes, if he Polish is a joke, jokes. if he is a joke thief, he has stolen those jokes from one hundred and one yucks. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, and Dan, you're gonna you're gonna don't spoil the fact that as as the movie goes on, we and we get close to the ending, we realize we're never gonna see him steal a joke. No, <laughs> or yeah. learn why he got the name joke thief because. Yeah. Now we're watching two guys meet. One of them we'll soon learn is Simon's manager, Sal, who's mm-hmm. played by, I forget the actor's name, but he is often Frank D'Angelo's stooge in these movies. He asked this other guy who, is that Danny Baldwin or is yep. it a different guy? Mm-hmm. Yep, Daniel Baldwin. Okay, Daniel Baldwin, who runs this club, which we'll le- soon learn later is named the comedy, ba- is the, called the Basement Comedy Club. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, uh, the, he says, come on, can you put Simon on the show as a favor to me? And he goes, Simon, the joke thief? I don't know. And he goes, do it as a favor to me. Okay, I'll put him on. We never. He's never called the joke thief again. From this point on, nobody talks about Simon in anything less than the most glowing terms. Yeah. Simon is Frank D'Angelo's character. And it's we, he never steals. Again, like Dan says, if he stole a joke, it's from like a web page of jokes <laughs> that your grandma like, might like or something I like, do that. like that. I do like that the movie opens with him practicing his material in front of a... A mirror, and then later on, when he's talking to his uh, his cabbie, his like magical black man, uh, Indian, Indian in this case, but yeah, but yeah. that's I mean that's the, the that's yeah, the type. It's, it's playing on the trope. He says that he never rehearses, and I'm like, I don't know. I have seen <laughs> concrete proof of you rehearsing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this the the this movie seems to be about someone who really doesn't want to be a comedian, mm-hmm. but seems to feel some kind of neurotic compulsion to be one, even though he seems to hate it, and it gets in the way of the rest of his life and he's not good at it. But yeah. we'll talk about that because then we've got to all skip over the little bit of business where the hotel chef at the hotel <laughs> where Simon lives, I guess, offers him some free food by stealing someone else's room service. And I think it's supposed to be a joke about the food like disappears when the waiter's back is turned, but it doesn't make sense. It's handled so poorly that I was like, I don't understand what I'm like. I was this very is like confused. a scene. It it's featured like a, scene a lot from an alien a lot sitcom. of phone calls though. Like we <laughs> yeah, get to watch the guy like actually punch in the <laughs> punch in the buttons. <laughs> <laughs> and we never know. We never see the chef again. We don't know why he loves Simon so much that he offers him someone else's food at the risk to his job, I have to assume. Because but everyone just love loves Simon. Him. Everyone loves him. So Simon's manager calls him. He says, "Oh, and again, I'm just guessing it's his manager." Later on, we see him going over his notes at the comedy club, although he never goes up. So I just assume it's his manager. The manager calls and says, hey, the Basement Comedy Club is going national tonight. Mm-hmm. That's not really explained, although we later find out it's on a national cable television channel that they're uh-huh. going live, Wait, I guess. And which... NBC, national, wait, <laughs> no, that was wrong. <laughs> Na- national Broadcasting, comma, Canadian. Which I I missed this when it, was, when it was first said. It had to be explained to me later. And I'm like, what? 
There's no indication of that later on. There's no cameras or anything at the club. No. Like the way no the club is being of run that watching the yeah, thing at home. The way the club is being run that night is no different than like a normal night at a comedy club. There's no uh-huh. absolutely Well, there's one thing there's one thing different, Dan, which is that the movie is edited so strangely that Unlike a normal comedy club, at this club, comedians go up multiple times per night before the same audience in random order, as if they're just drawing their names out of a hat to see who's going to go on stage next. Uh, So Simon is like, we know he wants to be a comedian. He's been training his whole life in front of a mirror to do this. But his manager calls, and this is where Frank D'Angelo's other trademark move of not wanting to do the things other characters are begging him to do comes in. He's like, uh, I don't know, I was about to eat. I don't want to come down to the comedy club. And they're like, look, they'll pay you $200 for five minutes, which is crazy. No, but, and it's we learn later, this is his first time performing stand-up in public, I guess. So, like... They're never going to pay you two hundred dollars no, no, for a five no, minute set for a newbie. It's not the first time standing in public. I think he's been blackballed for a while, right? It's the this... first time at the. But they he says it's the first time at the basement comedy at comedy basement. Yeah, that's know. the first time there. I think that uh, you have, but you have to you have to read into it that he's been blackballed because yeah. later on he later on Frank D'Angelo is talking about how he, this is new to him and stuff like that. It's anyway. Uh, he goes, "What am I going to wear?" And his manager says, "What you always wear." Frank D'Angelo then opens the closet where there is one vest hanging on a hanger and yeah. nothing else, not even other hangers, which makes me wonder what kind of hotel this is that yeah. does not provide adequate hangerage. And he dissolves to a flashback. Now we learn a little about him. Simon uh, is being told by his dad, who runs a car dealership, that Simon is a great car salesman, the best. Nested flashback. We have flashback within the flashback to Simon's mm-hmm. first sale as a young man when he sells a car. And then back. And I think I, th- I think this, one of the young versions of him, I believe, is played by his son or maybe a nephew or mm. something. Yes. I'm, I'm, he's certainly not an actor. Oh, I forgot to mention that we've also seen a scene where Simon's brother, William, is talking to his wife, and his wife is like, you're too soft on him. You're too good to him. And he's like, for my brother, I love him. I'd do anything. I'd do anything for my brother. I love him. It, it That's took all me a, William said. <laughs> it, it took me a while to realize it was his wife, because in, in most of her scenes, she's just seated at like, the secretary's desk at yeah. the car dealership. She's all, and it's it, a family car dealership. The wife is the receptionist, and the guy and the, her husband owns it it's a you know it's a family thing you know and by the way she at the end of the movie like the, everyone gets like their like picture on the like a, a clip from them earlier when their name comes up uh-huh. of the actor and hers is presented as lovingly as the rest of them and i'm like what she was she's barely the, like she's only there to like be like you're too hard easy on your brother and and mm-hmm. that's basically one of two lines she has in the whole film. So, Dan, is the problem that she has no screen time or that she is being treated too nicely considering she's so mean to Simon and his brother, William? <laughs> oh, yeah. Point. Yeah. That, that <laughs> yeah. A, sh- a shrill harridan of a woman. <laughs> You're saying that at the end when all the actors have their model pose and they sign the screen, like at the end of Avengers Endgame, that she didn't deserve hers? Like, literally, all she says is, you're too easy on him. And then later on when he comes in in a different flashback, she's like, oh, your brother's right in there. He'll do anything for you and, like, <laughs> smiles. Like, she's not mad about it. Yeah. Oh, but I thought that was sarcastic. Uh, oh, so, okay. So, Simon, why isn't he a car salesman anymore if he loves it so much? Well, the dad tells him, I want to retire. Simon, you're going to be the salesman, and w- William, you're going to be the manager. And Simon doesn't want his brother to be his boss. But Again, by all accounts... Simon's brother seems like he would be Simon's ideal boss. He loves him. He'll do anything for him. Yep. And he tells him how great he is constantly. But here's yeah, where we... And so, he, and we find out later, keeps a jacket for him 
in his office. And also, mm-hmm. as we've already learned, Simon's skill set is he's an amazing salesman. And the fact that, like, it's just very weird. It's very weird that he's so mad that uh, the other the brother is taking over the thing when his dream is to be a comedian. Like, he's yeah. so well, angry no, it's, about this. Well, here's <laughs> the thing. where So Simon, like all Frank D'Angelo characters, is a dour, humorless asshole who does not want anyone else to be the boss of him and has to know at all times that he's the one who's really in charge and the cool one. And we'll see this in a weird way in the bloopers that run during the credits. Yeah. But, uh, so Simon's I, and disappointed. I love, the, I love when the dad is about to give his retirement speech. He's like, you know, all of us uh, get put out to pasture sometime. Not me. I got plenty of years left. But I'm retiring. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, he, like he contradicts himself a couple times. And then we find out later he died shortly afterwards. Yeah, and the, and the <laughs> yeah. dad, I looked up the dad. The dad is an actor, a Canadian actor, who's been in like 140 things. Like he was in Porky's. He was in Black Christmas. Like, he was in Porky's? Yeah. <laughs> But uh, so that's a little too that's big. that's Porky Pig asking for a ticket to Porky's when it came out in the theaters, <laughs> and he was they're like, like he, "They're like, nah, kid, you don't want to see some dude's crank get yanked out of a fucking wall." <laughs> Is that where crank like, anchors came from? Yeah, probably. Someone's yeah, I mean, if anyone could relate to that, it's Porky Pig who has no crank, and I assume had it ripped off in a Castle Freak type scenario at some point. And he probably and he's used to bursting through a hole at the end of something, right? <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Well, a drum. He's used to bursting through a drum head, but is, sure. Wait, is that a drum head? Is that what that's supposed to be? Yes, I believe so. Okay. Like right. when people, yeah. So uh, anyway, the dad says, Simon, I know you're disappointed, but I believe in your dream of being a stand-up. You're so funny. And I want to help you by giving you the family's lucky vest. My dad <laughs> passed this down to me, and he's going to pass it down to you. And Simon could not look less excited to be getting the lucky vest from his dad. And you're like, is the dad making this up just yeah. to make Simon feel better? That lucky vest, he never wears it. We never see it again. Mm-hmm. Does not and factor I, into the movie. And I also got to say, like, the dad makes such a meal out of handing over this lucky vest that my my girlfriend turned to me and she's like, is this going to be a movie about a magic vest? <laughs> I wish. It turns into but, a movie about magic. Nothing. There's no magic in the world in this one. Uh, so Simon accepts the club offer while looking at the vest. Uh, and he calls William and he goes, hey, can you can you give me a car? I want a car right now. And William's like, I can't do that. But I'll tell you what, I'll call you a car. And Simon's like, don't give me an Uber because they all smell like curry. And it's disgusting. This is our our hero, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) This is our hero. And William promises, I'll be at the show too. And he calls him an Uber. The Uber has an Indian driver. Uh Uh-oh. What's going to happen to Simon now? He's a racist. And And the driver, Jerry is like waiting outside to let him in. Like, that's crazy. I've, I've never had a, a, a car service driver waiting outside well, to like open the well, back door for me. Ha- have you ever had a magic Bagger Vance-style car driver who solves all your life's problems in a car ride that lasts somewhere between 25 minutes and forever? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to say about this uh, this character, by the way, like the character is Jerry. the worst kind of like... Uh, driver? No, he's a great like, driver. No, he's like the worst kind of like non-white character with no inner life who helps the white character. But but I will say about this that uh, I think he's the best actor in the movie by far. Like, Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just the fact that he, he manages to... It's similar to... Uh, this is going to sound strange, I guess. But it's similar to in Meatballs 2, how <laughs> we were talking about how John Larroquette's character is very much an anti-gay slur, but John Larroquette imbues him with a certain level of dignity and grace... And yeah. this actor, I don't, I didn't look up his name, but he manages to make this character seem uh, through the 
terrible writing, see have this certain amount of dignity to the point where I was like, and I'm not sympathizing with this character. I'm sympathizing with the actor having to make these lines kind of work. Yeah. Because he knows he's playing this type of character, and he's doing it in a way that is not super goofy, and it's not super—it's not crap. He, I think you're right. I think he is the best actor in the movie, which, again, is the faintest of praise, but he does, he does <laughs> yeah. deserve it. Because, so, because now we get 13 minutes in, we finally get the opening credits, and then we get set up to— Basically, what? well, actually, in a moment, we'll learn what the true structure of the film is. But Simon's talking to Jerry, his Uber driver, about being a comedian. He sounds like he hates it. He tells a blonde joke to the driver. The driver does not get it. To be fair, I didn't get it at first either. Uh-huh. That was a, It took me a, a little bit to puzzle out this probably 80-year-old joke about blondes. Yeah, still, I, I think that we're supposed to think that, like, Frank is, or Frank D'Angelo's character is funny and like this guy's not getting it because of cultural differences, but we yes. are agreeing with the driver. Like, oh, these are not good jokes. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. they're baffling <laughs> jokes that we will not laugh at. I mean, throughout the movie, you're going to see the driver reassuring Frank that he's funny, even though the jokes are not funny, and telling him what a good man he actually is. He can tell he's a good man. I'm like, wow, he's really fighting for that five star rating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Later on, uh, not to jump too far ahead, but later on, uh, when he's pulling up, he. Uh, Simon, played by Frank D'Angelo, keeps thanking mm-hmm. the Uber driver for you know the kind words and the reassurance, and uh, the the driver Jerry on two different occasions says like, "No charge," and that's that's on me or like gratis or something. And I'm like, I really hope he's not comping his cab ride. Like I feel yeah. I, I'm kind of stressed out about the idea of this cab ride that takes at least 22 minutes long. Yeah, would be would be comped. For well, that's guy. the other thing is they become best friends over the course of this 22 minute ride. <laughs> yeah, they learn a little bit about each other, um, and it helps because during that cab ride, multiple times the camera zooms out of the frosted window and we go into into Simon's past. Oh, yeah, okay. I wanted I wanna, to, yeah, that's, yeah. I, I love, that is, that is, I will say, this is, Frank D'Angelo is inventing something here that I'd never seen before, which is that he is flashes back by literally gazing out the window and then the camera, like you said, zooms through the window as if he is driving through his memories. Uh, something yeah. we should mention is Simon's running very late and he's worried about being late, but he keeps telling the driver to slow down because he's going too fast. And the driver seems to be driving at, if anything, a quite slow speed. Like, mm-hmm. I think I could walk faster than this car. And do you think that was on purpose that Frank D'Angelo's character it does not actually want to, is worried about performing, and so he keeps telling oh, him, slow be. down, slow down. But mm-hmm. I, Or is it just that he just they just couldn't get across what, the, what was actually happening in the scene? Yeah, this is, one, uh, this is also one of the things that bothered me um, from, like, a comedy standpoint about the movie, like, okay, I am, I've done stand-up comedy. It was never like a big part of like my coming up and doing comedy, but I have done it. I, and I've done it once or twice in like a real club and rather than like sort of a friendly room, like the UCB or something like that. Or like rather than a done up, uh, Toronto and uh, <laughs> Supper Club, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, Italian where everyone in the audience is being paid by you to be there. Mm-hmm. And I and guess uh, if they're being paid, they should have fucking laughed harder. <laughs> and I guess, and I guess, um, you know, they uh, like they're filming this, so things might be a little tighter. But again, you don't see the cameras, you don't see anyone being concerned about all of that, and. It, on a normal uh, comedy night, like if you're r- running late, as he naturally is, because he only learned about the show right beforehand, like they wouldn't be like it wouldn't be like he keeps getting these frenzied calls, like get down here, get down here, and 
they would just put him on whenever like they fucking could find a spot for him. Well, well, I think the person who's calling him is not the person running the show. It's his yeah. manager who's like, "Get down here! You're basically what he's saying is you're going to screw this up if you well, don't show up." Yeah, but uh, here's one of my many screenplay fixes I'm going to offer. There's a critic. Oh wow! Character that we find. <laughs> I late. mean, does is should Frank D'Angelo send you a check for this, or is this yes. just your online <laughs> masterclass? <laughs> yeah, this is my <laughs> online masterclass. But there's a critic in the audience. We find out later. Uh, oh, you're saying that maybe they critic. should have planted that a little earlier to provide some stakes for the yeah, night? Yeah, they should have been yeah, like... Like a Ratatouille big night situation. Yeah, he should be calling being like, <laughs> oh, the critic's getting tired. It looks like he might leave. You know, you got to get down here if you want... You yeah. know, something like that. I don't know. Anyway. No, Dan, I think they made the movie up as they went along. That's okay. part of it. But so uh, Simon, as Stuart said, he zoomed through the car window to flash back to uh, him asking his brother for money. And the brother tells him, I can't just give you money ahead of payday. You go out there, sell a car right now, I'll cut you a check for the commission immediately. Simon walks out, instantly sells a car, despite being the lowest energy salesman I've ever seen and the most off-putting salesman I've ever seen. He basically sells the car by making the customer feel emasculated. The customer's uh-huh. like, I should go talk to my wife before I buy this. And he goes, okay, let me just, I want to hold the car for you. It's a great car. It's got. He keeps repeating the same uh, things about the car because he knows like four things about the car. Uh-huh. He's like, I'll, I'll just put it down here and I'll write in this box. I'll just say has to ask wife's permission. And the guy's mm-hmm. like, instantly his face turns cold and angry like a nor- northern <laughs> yeah. Toronto winter. Yeah, the, the, the storm clouds roll in. <laughs> yeah, And he's like, I don't need anyone's permission to buy a fucking car. I'm going to buy it. And it was like one of those things where I wondered if, because uh, there have been times when I'm, like when I bought uh, a car where it was like, I can feel myself reacting emotionally to things that the salesman is saying, and I know he's saying them to get me to have that reaction. Mm-hmm. And I kept wondering if that character knew he was falling for the easiest, oldest <laughs> trap in the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, all right, also with these car window flashbacks, I want to say something uh, in re- regards to those. And, now, is this uh, advice to Frank D'Angelo, or you're, you're addressing the entire audience? This is more script doctor advice. Okay, so to Frank. <laughs> um, so, Frank, I hope you're listening. So, okay, this movie has a baffling timeline to it like the way it plays with uh, chronology is fast and loose and i know that you elliot have some things you want to say about that Mm -hmm. but i just want to Mm -hmm. introduce one thought and that's like that is the beginning of the movie is very hard to follow because of these nested flashbacks and whatever and we're not familiar with the character at all Uh uh i think that there should not be a flashback until he's in the car all the flashbacks should be in the car when we are primed to think like this is a trip and like he's taking yeah. a trip down memory lane at the same time. Yeah, yeah interesting. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Put, just put that uh, put that advice in the in the Frank tank or yeah. the Frank bank, depending <laughs> on which you prefer. Frank, Frank, the Frank tank in the Frank bank, yeah. And then you turn the Frank crank to, to pull it out again, open it up. Uh, <laughs> Don't let that Frank crank get yanked. <laughs> oh no, yeah, of course no. not. It's not that's this a kind Frank of movie. wank, Dan. Um, <laughs> Now, Dan, I have two things I want to say to you about. One, I think you're totally right. And two, it feels like you are wasting kind of good notes when there's a larger problem. No, there are you It's as if somebody somebody tried to sculpt a statue of George Washington out of human shit, and you're like, well, you didn't really get the curls on the wig right. Dan, there's a larger problem with the statue. Well, I, it's, but he's like trapped in the car. It's like, what is that, Cosmopolis? Let's stick. Uh, <laughs> well, as to the larger do you, problem, do you think this is it? he was like, this is going to be my Cosmopolis? <laughs> yeah, because like 
Uh, you would assume that this uh, comedy show that is important and going out on cable news network <laughs> is being filmed at night, but all the shots from the car are daytime, yeah, so we can't be running late. It's, it's midday. Pro- chronological problem I wanted to get into. No, so, so here's the here. I want to mention before we get into that further. So now we so now we go to the comedy basement and MC Daniel Baldwin and his character of Freddie C. He intros each of the comics, and this is when we get into the real structure of the movie. The real act two, if you will, which is intercutting just little snippets of actual stand-up comedy from actual stand-ups with Frank D'Angelo in his car having a real soul-bearing heart-to-heart talk with Jerry. And the juxtaposition between all these comics telling blowjob jokes and then Frank D'Angelo talking to to his driver about his mother's death is so jarring to me. And it's it's like, and among these comics, the real comics, one of them is this character, Ed... Ed the Sock, who is a real—he's been a fixture in the Canadian comedy scene for years. Apparently, I was looking it up, and I found footage of his, I guess, local television show, God. which is basically Howard Stern hosted by a sock. God yeah, I mean, knows. like right, rightly so. I yeah. mean, his yeah. material elicits, I don't know, mild humor, like mild, <laughs> and, mild humor. Yeah, I wanted to say. And so you'll have these scenes. You'll have these scenes where it's Ed the Sock being like, "What's with penis size?" You'd think you want a guy with a smaller dick. It wouldn't hurt as much. And then cuts to Frank being like, yeah, I wasn't there when my dad died. <laughs> it's like, what? But also, I want to make it clear that these real comics are only marginally funnier than Frank with his joke. Oh, no, I mean, jokes. they're not superstars. I mean, they're, they're, there are, this is the, but these are the kind of comedians that, like, you would see, I assume, if you went to. Yeah, an open just like mic. a Wednesday night <laughs> Toronto. I, I do love. Club I do love that stand-up. one of the guys gets introduced as the Canadian guy, and I'm like, oh, th- thanks for differentiating him from the other Canadian guys. <laughs> the, yeah. Uh, so the uh, so, so we have so we're going between their uh, these different comedians again, and cutting between them and Simon in the car telling old jokes and like kind of dour sadness and. As we said, the comedians, you keep cutting to the same ones coming up in different orders, and the car ride just keeps going on. So I'm like, how long is this car ride? How long is this show? Are there multiple shows and he's missing all of them, or are we and Simon in purgatory, and uh-huh. he just has to sit through this eternal ride? Well, that's yeah, these are questions I had, because there are, there are gaps in Simon's story. So like, so I assume that whenever we wait, you wanted more of Simon's story. No, no, no. Like there are gaps in what's going on in the car on Simon's side. So I assumed that whenever we cut to the comedians, Simon's story was continuing, and we weren't seeing it. Okay. So like, it was unfolding in basically real time. Except for that means that the car ride was not twenty-two minutes. Mm -hmm. It was at least (laughs) fifty. Yeah, so I wonder if they're, if they're supposed to be happening side by side. What was that movie where there's four stories and they're each happening in a quadrant? Uh, time, code. time Code. Time Code? Maybe yeah. it's supposed to be like that, but he couldn't get the editing software to make them go on the screen at the same time? Yeah, but also, yeah, for clarity about what you were saying before, like, once when you start the movie, like, it's all different comics, so you think, like, oh, we're seeing these comics go on one after the other, but, yeah. but Frank D'Angelo feels like he needs to cut it up so you would go back to a little bit of a previous comic set. And he also edits their set so bafflingly. Like, he'll cut it off when you're pretty sure that there was a punchline coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I don't think, I, I think we don't, I think there's plenty of evidence in the movie to show that Frank D'Angelo doesn't really understand comedy or what's <laughs> funny. Uh, so, 
so anyway, some salient points while we're doing these kind of bouncing back and forth. I'll just tell you about what's going on with Simon. He has a flashback to his mother's deathbed. Uh, he's afraid to go in, but his brother guilts him about missing his dad's death. His mom looks fine, by the way. She just looks like she's on a bed in a row. Sometimes robe. that's what so, happens, so Dan. Your, so your criticism there is that she didn't? they didn't get an actual dying person to die on camera. I mean, she's not on any, like, machines or anything. She seems well, Dan, chipper and, and awake. There is one IV bag or monitor machine placed in what is clearly the same hotel room that Frank (laughs) D'Angelo was shooting his scenes in earlier. So I'm sure the hotel wasn't going to let them bring in all these hospital machines. I'm just saying I have rarely seen a healthier looking older woman. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dan's like, when's she going to try out for the next season of American Ninja Warrior? (laughs) Based on how she held Frank's hand, I'm assuming her grip strength is up to the test. Okay, go on. She's, and, she, and she asks Simon why he's so sad, and he doesn't have an answer for that. Uh, the Uber driver says, oh, Simon, you need a wife. And Simon flashes back to flirting with a couple different women at, I assume, the Forget About It Supper Club. And he's got this re- – and he, and he has this – we then cut to this montage of him going through his regular routine at his favorite restaurant where he orders the same thing every time, the filet mignon with the lobster tail. And then uh, there's some – And the angel like, hair pertinesca, the way that – he likes it done. Uh-huh. They're like, can you do the angel hair the way I like it? Puranesco? And it goes, yeah. and bring me my usual wine. And of course, and then of course, he has a great meal. The women are loving it. Every time he says, oh, I've got a phone call. He gets up, touches their shoulder as he walks out, mm-hmm. and then he just leaves. And the woman gets stuck with the bill. And, yeah. it seems, and at first we think he's just a jerk. But then we learn, oh no, he's a jerk who is testing these women. And the woman who laughs when the bill is delivered to her she must be his match, oh, and he calls yeah. her and invites her to a show. We never see her again. I assume she didn't show up to the comedy show. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, of... that's the next step of the joke, right, is that you just don't go to his important comedy show. Now, the thing that I liked about this it's, scene is It's one is of those that... relationships where they're always challenging each other. It's a Virginia Woolf type. It's a Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf type thing. So, sorry, ba- see what you were ba- saying. Based on the angle of the, the cameras, now i got to do a little bit of detective work, but mm. last time we were in Toronto, <laughs> I'm pretty sure we ate at the exact same table. Oh. <laughs> in the Forget wow. About it Supper Club. Uh, uh, if I'd have known you... what I should have ordered. <laughs> well, not that's not that's not what you should <laughs> I gotta say, um so my girlfriend who is not Italian grew up for a large part of her well, so, Dan, you're slowly revealing enough information that we'll be able to guess who she is. <laughs> no, that's fine. Italian. But like she she's not Italian, but she grew up in an Italian American household for much of her childhood. And this is one of two points where she was very angry at the movie and she's like, You wouldn't order Putinesca with a surf and turf. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, the uh, Frank D'Angelo is one of those guys who like clearly is Italian. I would say not Italian American, Italian Canadian. But he seems to be living out his movie Goodfellas fantasy of what an Italian is, yeah. And, yeah. and he doesn't I mean, really seem to get. It's like a basically when, every movie he makes could have just been called Salud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, but it, it feels like any movie where someone is. An American, but they're uh, an ethnic minority, and they go to the country where their family is from, and they feel out of place, and they like maybe there's more novels like that than movies. Like that's what his life seems to be like through these yeah. movies. There are three things I want to say about this restaurant scene, though, very quickly. Like, oh boy, n- number one, I said very quickly. <laughs> number one, uh, we see this thing repeat three times, and when I say we see it re- repeat three times, we see the whole thing repeat three times, as if. Frank D'Angelo does not assume that we as the audience will get it, that it's the same exact thing happening. <laughs> and you, and there's this process that you go through while you're watching it of dawning realization that you're going to have to watch <laughs> everything happen thrice. But also, you're, 
You're also like, why does this waiter play along with well, it? Well, that's it's what I same... wanted to mention is this waiter, Jack, is like Frank's is Simon's regular waiter. I was going to ask if you guys were served by Jack while you were at the, what, sitting at that table. And Jack helps him go through this charade, which makes Jack a terrible person. That yeah. he helps him trick these women. And then... I can't imagine it helps the tip he's going to receive. No, bad tip. It doesn't help the Yelp reviews for the restaurant. Restaurant helped him trap me to pay for expensive meal on a date. And then Simon calls him up after each date and is like, so how'd she take it? How'd it go? And he's like, thanks for doing that, Jack. And Jack's like, anything for you, Simon. Why? Why are people so ready to do anything for Simon, who is by all available evidence a terrible person? Well, that's the third thing I wanted to say, because at first you think that, like, he's just scamming a meal, and you're like, why is this happening? Like, his problem is not that he's without funds. Like, he's not he a has... joke. Th- he's, a, he's a joke thief, not a food thief. Yeah, but then but then, once you realize... Although he's a food thief, he does steal someone else's room service earlier <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the, that's in the, in the movie. That's the thing about him. I mean, but you what? know what? Eating, eating <laughs> food that you pay for does not taste nearly as sweet yeah. as food that you have paid the iron price for and yeah. stolen from someone. <laughs> but but what I was going to say is, like, once you realize that it's a test, you realize that this whole thing is just another, like, example of Frank D'Angelo's narcissism as, like, an actor and a person because he doesn't want to show himself being rejected by women. He wants to show himself like being the rejecter until there's someone yes. who loves him so much that she overcomes that. And, it's and like, that he is so great that these women need to be tested. to. Sh- and each of these women yeah. is far out of his league. They're all much more attractive than him. <laughs> and they have s- genuine smiles <laughs> that he does not show ever in the I, movie. I feel, like, and, I feel like if a woman were to reject him, it would be ba- on based on the like... You're too loyal to your family, or like mm-hmm. I don't yeah. like you're too strong. You're but you just like, you're too good a guy. And I'm not used to that. To I just can't handle someone who's so good to me. And then yeah. he'd throw acid in her face, and everyone would be like, <laughs> "Good going, Frank. Good going. Anything for you." Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's terrible. Anyway, so, uh, uh, so more talk between Simon and his driver. His driver says he has faith. Simon is a good man. When again, there is no evidence. To, in fact, many, much evidence to the contrary to this. Uh, more jokes about blowjobs. There's a long sequence where it's stand-up comedians joking about blowjobs while, again, Simon talks about his regrets and how, <laughs> how unhappy he is. Uh, he, he tells, and then he finally, they, you know they've bonded when Jerry tells the driver, hey, your car doesn't smell like curry, so thanks. And the yeah. driver says, well, it's a new car. Yeah. Yeah, it's the kind of, like, you know, nudging, happy response to casual racism that you would expect maybe, maybe out of people who had known them, known each other like since childhood uh-huh. and have that kind of joshing relationship, not like some asshole who just got in that car that morning. Yeah, and it's it's like the kind of shit where like, and then Jerry like playing along with the joke is that kind of shit where it like confirms with Frank that he's riding with one of the good ones. Right, like, or that yeah. he's okay garbage. in his like racism. Yeah. yeah, It's very much, it's what happens when there's a huge power imbalance in the dynamic between two people where the racist is like, look, I'm going to pay you for this service or I could decide not to pay you. So why don't you play along with my racism or else maybe you're not going to, maybe you're, you're going to have wasted all this time on nothing. And he's like, oh, yes, sir. Yes, of course. Uh, yes, Curry. I'm Indian. Thank you. Great. Uh, blah, blah. Like, it's yeah. such a, uh, you can feel the actor swallowing his pride in a well, way that I was like, is that the character or the actor? That's uh, good acting. Also, the Indian guy saying it is supposed to like validate that Frank is a good guy. But then you're like, wait a minute, Frank, you wrote this line and gave it to him <laughs> to say. <laughs> Well, it's that's the meta, there's a, yeah. there's a, I feel like that happens in a lot of movies where uh, where 
the the person who wrote it or the, the the author of the of the work has either themselves or a surrogate character playing themselves, and mm-hmm. other ca- characters are just talking about how great they are, and it's like, wait a minute, hold on. I know this that is... that that's Jesse Eisenberg, but he's speaking with Woody Allen's mouth. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, that's because they surgically moved Woody Allen's mouth to Jesse Eisenberg's face yeah. in probably one of the most horrific pieces of Hollywood <laughs> surgery since uh since uh. You know that human centipede incident when they tried to put try, they tried to take Tom Cruise, Will Smith, and George Clooney and make them into a megastar yeah. by uh-huh. sewing them together. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, now, have we arrived at the? At that the... was a really weird thing to put on display at Planet Hollywood. But you know what? <laughs> I'll allow it. Have hey, look, it's their own planet. They make the rules. <laughs> hey, there's Bruno playing harmonica up on the stage. <laughs> No, they they needed something that was so unpleasant to look at that people would distract themselves by watching Bruce Willis play harmonica because usually they would choose to look at anything other than that. <laughs> I just didn't know whether we, have we arrived at the destination yet at this point in the synopsis? no no I'll tell you very quickly uh, okay by this point Jerry has totally validated Simon as a good soul who deserves success and the next time they meet it will be as friends he says I'm honored Simon says I'm honored to call you my friends they get to the comedy basement they hug. And I assume Simon has been taught to be grateful for the things in his life that he was not grateful about before. Maybe he's been given courage. It's so unclear what lessons Simon has learned from all this. I don't know. But Simon has finally made it to the comedy basement. Time for him to go up on stage. Well, First, the, the comedy columnist is there. Yeah, let me make the point. I, like, this is what I was waiting for. And it's kind of like okay. what you you were saying there before. Like, I am. Wait, wait, wait. Let me buckle my seatbelt, Dan. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I am. Hold on. Let me pull the shoulder oh, harness God. down so I don't get thrown out of the ride. I mean, like I said, Elliot kind of already made this point, but a little bit. Like, I have no idea what the catharsis is in this movie because if we look back on what Simon has flashed back to, like the troubles in his life, they basically boil down to his parents died, which I don't want to minimize because I know it's a very difficult thing to go through. But like, I mean, some di- sometimes people turn into Batman when that happens. That's right. how difficult it is. Well, but that's a violent early death, whereas like both of these people seem to have lived rich, full lives and, and then died of old age. And appeared to be in the prime of health moments before <laughs> being snatched away. <laughs> so they, they went out at their peak like Joe DiMaggio. So there's that and... I guess the fact that he's a joke thief, which, again, is not really referenced and is his fault, if it's true. I mean, that's one of the things where if it if this movie wasn't called The Joke Thief, you would never get the idea that he's a joke thief. It yeah. would be about a man who cannot, who is, wants to be a comedian but is so full of stage fright or maybe worried about rejection or loss. Like, you could yeah. make a movie about someone who has lost family members and wants to make people laugh but is worried that, like— they'll lose the audience or something like yeah. that. And that's the surrogate family they've always been looking for. But like, that's not what the movie is. The movie's called The Joke Thief. So you see yeah. it's about a guy who stole jokes and has to be redeemed. But you never see him steal a joke except all of his jokes. Yeah, I'm just saying... public domain jokes. He's gone through so little hardship in his life other than the fact that he has not made it as a stand-up comic, which is one of the hardest things in the world to do. So, like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it would be... Especially when most of your performing experience is in front of a mirror in your house. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like the title of the movie should have been called, like, Number One Worst Cab Customer of All Time. (laughs) Because it, I mean, it slightly edges out collateral for that title. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it goes like Martin Scorsese and Taxi Driver, Frank D'Angelo in this movie, collateral. (laughs) Now, where does uh, Stuber fit in this? Oh, wow, that's a tough one. Uh, (laughs) Based on the fact that I haven't seen it. Uh, but I like the people in it more. Do you like uh, the title of it, since it has your name? 
Uh, I mean, yeah, I like everything that has my name a little bit. That's why Stuart Pankin is my favorite celebrity. <laughs> Not necessarily the new star, Stuart Pankin. That's why you grew up having a big crush on Gloria Stewart. Uh-huh, yep. And uh, we got any more? Uh, you enjoy eating stew? I don't uh-huh. know. Uh-huh. As long as that, that stew isn't made out of the body of Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> okay, let's move forward, guys. Yeah. So he gets to the comedy club. Everybody like looks at him and nods, and they're like, "Oh, I, I heard of you. You're the best." He goes to the com- He goes to the, co- the comedy columnist. And he goes, "Hey, how come you never written about me?" And he goes, "Because I write about comedians," which is supposed to be like a big, you know, put down, but. If he's barely performing. Oh, that's right. Earlier on, he mentioned to Jerry, as I think Stuart mentioned, that he says he never rehearses, but maybe you should. And it's like, dude, yeah, you have to. What are you doing? Yeah. Never rehearses. Like, what? Anyway, and it's, all, it's a crazy thing to say. And he's hanging I, out it, with all the supportive comics backstage. Again, people who are supportive, even though he's supposed to be a joke thief and comedians would be very like suspicious of him at best. And now, all the comics are hanging out. In the green room after they performed, and because they're going to have to go right back up again. again. You've seen how this club works. Yeah, again, as someone who has done it a few times at least, like comedians, as soon as their set is done, they either leave or go to the bar in the back of the room. Now, now I do like how the majority of the jokes are like super old fashioned, and they're all like pretty misogynistic Mm -hmm. like oh man this is great i'm glad that we let somebody's fucking grandpa pick the fucking set list (laughs) well i mean i'm sure that uh, frank delangelo finds all of these shows hilarious yeah yeah and uh, so as as dan mentioned normally they would all leave but this being the comedy carousel or comedy shooting gallery where randomly (laughs) comics just pop up to tell you things uh they're still there uh so we're simon hangs around through multiple acts to get to his turn and it's like Okay, time for him to go up. Let's see him. No, wait, they're introducing a different comedian. And I will say that this is a very real depiction of what a comedy club is like, where you think the show is going to be over, and they're like, (laughs) we got one more guy coming up, and you're like, oh, God, I'm done. I don't need anymore. Yeah, and this was also the point when I was actually yelling at the screen, because I'm like, movie, you've reached the climax, and now you're going to grind to a halt to show all of this guy's set. Yeah, what yeah. is going Gr- on? Grind to a halt. This movie that has had almost no narrative momentum the entire time. <laughs> yeah. I ha- you were saying, Dan, like, if they thought he was a joke thief, why are they acting that way? I think by this point in the movie, they have all forgotten it's called The Joke Thief <laughs> and it's supposed to be about a joke thief. They just forgot that. They uh-huh. don't. Rem- it's now just about a great comedian who hasn't had his due. We watch an entire act of this guy telling Italian jokes, and uh-huh. the- which is also like, why would you put a comedian who does nothing but Italian jokes in your Frank D'Angelo movie? So it makes Frank D'Angelo seem even less special than he would otherwise be. Yeah, this but- was the other time that... That my uh, girlfriend was like angry at the movies. Like again, grew up in an Italian American household. Was she was she angry because she was laughing so hard and she split her sides? Yeah, that's right. Like, why'd you do this to me, joke thief? No, she's like, just because it's like the worst Italian American stereotypes. And she's like, I never encountered anyone like this. I do like that that guy that the guy has a joke where the premise is that he doesn't like the current American president because he's not enough like a gangster. Yeah. <laughs> like, yep. Clearly this guy knows what the world needs. I was surprised that the movie briefly got political with some anti-Trump comedy. <laughs> Very strange I think that was in the, the middle thing of this. where I was like that threw me off because I was like is this guy anti-Trump? Because he reminds me of all the Trump voters that I knew that I grew up yeah. with. Yeah, yeah. Like, like the guy, like my my uh, a close 
family friend who like I'm sure voted for Trump like and is it like he reminds me so much of that guy. But anyway, and is he, he is uh, he a New Jersey stand up comedian who tells mafioso based jokes? Uh, yeah. Anyway, he's in this movie, and <laughs> so, uh, so Simon waits. He flashes back to his dad telling him he's funny. Jerry telling him he's funny. Finally, Lord above, we are seven minutes away from the end of this eighty-seven minute movie, and it feels like we've been here forever. Uh, MC Daniel Baldwin, Freddie C. He comes up and he gives the most heartfelt intro to Simon. This is a guy who he only put up as a favor to a friend, and he's like, "It means so much to me." To have this guy coming up making his basement, his comedy basement debut. I mean, Simon, whatever his name is. I will say that is that is true to a comedy MC. They will lie about you being great. <laughs> but, it's, but he ta- It's not even like he's like this guy's a great comedian. He talks about him as if this is his a, a beloved, you know, landmark icon That's of the true. comedy world. Yeah, I anyway. mean, I feel like. They talked about how Simon is a good car salesman. I think Freddie C. is the good salesman. (laughs) Uh, So Simon comes up. His act consists of two jokes. Mm -hmm. One is about a penguin with car trouble that turns out to be a blowjob joke. And the other is about a joke about a dog who can buy drinks but then wastes the money on a prostitute. That's the entire act. And the audience (laughs) loves it. Yeah, it's and the, two jokes. The, the critic nods approvingly from the audience. Yeah, and points to his paper like, you're going to be in it tonight. <laughs> and you're going to be in this report. And it's like, and I started thinking now, like, so that's $200. They paid him $100 per joke for those jokes. Like, that's yeah, crazy. Yeah, and I mean, they were long jokes. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the rate of, like, now, mailing in a joke to Bob what's Hope. Weird is that, <laughs> what's weird is that they made a point of saying that this set is going to be televised, why is it such a big deal that the critic is also there? Like, it's not like pe- people are going to see it. It doesn't really matter if what the critic uh, not says. Not if it makes sense. Stuart, you just don't understand the comedy world, <laughs> all right? The most important thing is to get on the side of the critics. <laughs> because Frank D'Angelo understands comedy based on what he saw in the movie Sweet Smell of Success, where the only way to get success is to be in the columns the next day. And so... That's Simon walks off to applause, and that's the movie. The title comes up, The Joke Thief. They somehow remember that's what the movie is called. Mm-hmm. There's a dedication card to Frank D'Angelo's father. Uh-huh. And we get uh, in the end credits, Ed the Sock gets his own end credit title <laughs> card for himself. And we get to, Dan uh, hinted earlier, there's a blooper reel. And I want to take a couple minutes to talk about this, because... This is much like the movie misunderstands comedy and movies and human behavior. The blooper reel, it's supposed to be like blooper reels is like a reel of people screwing up and having fun and being silly. Yeah, like Johnny Knoxville getting his ball smashed in. Well, that's also most of the movie. But yeah, that's the blooper reel too. But this blooper reel is almost entirely Frank D'Angelo berating the crew for doing things wrong. Like telling him that the boom mic slipped down, getting mad at one of the actors for doing something wrong, and he's just being a jerk. And it's like, I I have two theories about this. Either one, after playing a sad sack for the whole movie, even a sad sack everyone in the movie loves and will do anything for, he had to reassure the audience that he is the boss, he is in charge, so he's going to show you what it's really like on the set, or that it's like the end of a face in the crowd, and like the editor wanted to show the world what a bad guy Frank D'Angelo is, so he snuck yeah. in this footage of him being yeah. a jerk. But it's I was so baffled by these. I was so excited, because as everyone knows, anytime I finish any movie, even like The Favorite, I fast forward to the credits to see if there are any bloops. <laughs> almost no, there's almost, I remember, <laughs> anytime my wife and I are watching like a really heavy, serious movie, I like to cut the tension by whenever it ends. Like when Spotlight was over, I was like, okay, let's just check and see if there are any bloops. And I <laughs> the credits. But uh, I was like, finally, bloops. And but these bloops are like, again, it's just it's just on set footage of Frank D'Angelo 
telling people that they're wrong about stuff. Yeah. It's crazy. And you have offered two joke explanations for this. I want to offer what I believe to be the real explanation, which is Frank D'Angelo is an asshole. And as many <laughs> as many assholes... I feel, like that, I feel like that dovetails with both of my explanations. Yeah. Well, but as many assholes do, he thinks that berating other people is all in good fun and it's hilarious and everyone's going to love seeing him berating these yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seeing him giving someone the dozens. Yeah. <laughs> well, in Canada with the exchange rate, it's actually about 16. <laughs> oh, shit. Wow. <laughs> wow, that's the hackiest joke I could have told. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I got a comedy showcase that you can be a part of forever. <laughs> <gasps> no. Wait, is it in a basement? I love it. He probably saw Louie and he was like, comedy seller. Okay, I'll name my club the comedy basement. Almost certainly. Almost certainly. Okay, let's move on. Actually, you know what? I never thought about that. This movie likes makes a lot more sense if Frank D'Angelo saw Louie, the show, yeah, and was like, "Oh, I'll do that." And that this is his understanding of what that show is. Like, He's I like, bet that's it. Now that Louie's off the air due to I don't know some uh, PC based reason, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna oh. fill that void with my movie. I mean, ironically, Frank D'Angelo was brought up on charges of sexual harassment, so they're they're like two peas in a pod. Mm-hmm. That was the story of Frank D'Angelo being. Uh, the charges were were dro- uh, either dropped or he was found not guilty, and then he invited either the prosecutor or the judge to his congratulations party afterwards. Which real smooth, classy move, mm-hmm. <laughs> classy move, Canadian legal system. Well, I, I I like that as a place to give our final judgment <laughs> whether this is a good bad movie, a bad bad movie, or a movie you kind of liked. I'm gonna say. I usually really like these uh, small timber episodes. I do feel small timber, yeah. as we said, a little guilty about signal punch- boosting an asshole. Yeah, well, yeah, I was gonna say punching down, but also like I don't, I feel less guilty about it because he's such a jerk. Yeah, that I, but I usually really enjoy these because it's a they're always sillier and weirder, and they give us a chance to do something different. I will say that I yelled at the screen more at this one. I think because in addition to the baffling. Uh, narrative choices again i'm like he misunderstands comedy so much you're like watching it and you're like do a little fucking research on how any of this works like you have comics in your movie ask one of them whether any of this makes sense but that being said it is so dumb and so weird that i would say it's probably a good bad movie yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I would feel uh, uh, of the Frank D'Angelo movies we've watched, I this one was the least pleasant. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the and it is one of those things where you're like, you're like, Frank, you're making a movie and scoring it and starring in it every year. What the fuck am I doing with my life? <laughs> uh, so yeah, I guess it's a good bad movie. Uh, I mean. You probably shouldn't support him because he's an asshole. So yeah, that's the whatever. tough thing. Like, figure out a way of seeing it if you want to without giving him money. And I would, yeah, I would also call it a good bad movie because it is baffling. But uh, I would say similarly, if you're gonna watch a Frank D'Angelo movie in some way that involves not giving money to him, this is not the one to start with. I would still say that No Deposit is yeah, the one to start yeah, that's with. The best. But yeah. uh, if you're willing, if you want to dig further into the Frank D'Angelo in the <laughs> Frank D'Angeloverse, then then go ahead with this one. <laughs> It's me, Paula Poundstone. And it's me, Adam Felber. We have a podcast called Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. It's a comedy podcast where we bring on experts to teach us stuff we need to know. And, by the way, the guy who came to tell us what to do when you encounter a bear never showed up. Anyway, it's fun. You are guaranteed laughs in every episode. You can't really guarantee laughs. What if somebody doesn't laugh? We'll get sued. 
Join us for our next episode where we have an expert in consumer law explain to us how to defend ourselves against one humorless litigious shut-in with enough time on their hands to sue us over our unfulfilled claim of guaranteed lapse in every episode here at MaximumFun.org. The Cat of the Week is Mabel from Green Bank, West Virginia. Welcome, everyone, to the live wrestling spectacular in Los Angeles. So far, the world's most boring wrestling podcast has been destroying the competition. Isn't there anyone who can save us from this travesty? Wait, could it be? It's Tights and Fights, the perfect wrestling podcast. Tights and Fights is here to save us from the monotony of boring wrestling podcasts with hilarious conversations. Woke trips through the history of wrestling. And joke about the finer points of people wearing spandex. What a match! And the Tights and Fights podcast will be back every week. Thursdays on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get podcasts. Please, these hosts have families. Tights and Fights podcast. Tights and Fights. So... Uh, moving on, let me unlock my phone so I can read a few ads. Professional. The first one is Squarespace. Hey, why not? <laughs> so, Dan, does the ad copy for Squarespace start with hey? Because you always start them that way. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Like, I was looking at it, and most of them sort of like give you a little intro. And I was taken off guard by the fact that it goes right into bullet points. So, But I want to say... As a by word of expo- explanation, Squarespace is one of our sponsors, and they help you make websites where you can uh, blog or publish content, sell products and services of all kinds, and more. You know, more is like you know whatever your little heart desires. Uh, Squarespace does this. Is by- that is that clarified in the copy? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or are you writing checks that they can't cash? Again, I mean, like. Our great sponsor, which is a great sponsor, uh, they probably don't want us criticizing the copy, but I always get taken off guard nope. by that as well because there are two bullet points and then and more. <laughs> but Squarespace does this by giving you beautiful, customizable templates created by world-class designers, everything optimized for mobile right out of the box, a new way to buy domains and choose from over 200 extensions, and free and secure hosting. So... Head to squarespace.com slash flop for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code FLOP to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Now, Dan, I had an idea for a website, and I was wondering if you thought Squarespace would be able to help me with it. Uh, Probably, but go on. Okay, so I was inspired by this movie. Uh, I really was inspired by the driver, Jerry, as uh, as Simon dubs him, uh, and how he wasn't just a driver of a man— in a car. He was a driver of a man's soul. And uh-huh. he really gave him the spiritual and philosophical and therapeutic uplift he needed all in that little drive. And so inspired by Jerry and Uber, I wanted to start my own car service I called Juber, named after Jerry, of course. Okay. Uh, and the and he, with Juber, you get in the car and you're not just getting a ride. You're getting a soul and you're getting a listening ear mm-hmm. and you're getting some good advice. So that's Juber. Now, again, this is different from my previous website, Juber.com, which was candies in the shape of Jews. It was like goobers, but they're in the shape uh-huh. of Jews, famous Jews, you know, like 
Shalom Aleichem, uh, Sidney Pollock, you know, all sorts of famous Jews. But that was that was a different, that was Juber.com. So this is Juber.org, uh, because I feel like what we're doing here is more of a charitable, not-for-profit thing, although we are expecting a profit. So that's Juber.org for someone like Jerry to listen to your problems yeah. and give you advice while you get driven to where you're going. Or Juber.com, if you're still interested, I have a warehouse full of candy in the shape of Jews. If anyone, if you ever wanted a piece of candy shaped like Joseph Heller, or a piece of candy shaped like... Uh, like Golda Meir, just let me know. <laughs> yep. They're Peace very candy, as as shaped like half of William Shatner. <laughs> yeah, that's yep. As it says on the bag, very chewy, very Jewy. That's Juber.com. Just again, I'll sell it to you cut rate because I got a warehouse full of things. They did not move. Now and Juber.org is is Jerry's Uber driver. Now Elliot, uh I just want to take a moment to say, even though I know that you are one of the chosen people, that uh-huh. made me very uncomfortable. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, I don't understand. I mean, I'm just trying to celebrate my my heritage in okay. the form of delicious candy. But okay. okay. Moving on to Dashlane, the Flophouse is supported in part by Dashlane, mm-hmm. which is a password management app that keeps all of your online information safe, secure, encrypted, and easy to access. I Dashlane need this. remembers all of your passwords, so you don't have to. Can't remember the special characters, capitalization, and length requirements for every single website you've ever visited in your entire life? Dashlane can. That sounds great, because, you know, I've been doing this podcast for a long time, and every time we're about to do uh, every time we're about to do an intro, I always forget how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Can you identify with that at all, Dan? Yeah, well, no, I'm glad that you finally admit it, too, Stuart. Take a little of the weight off my shoulders. But uh, Dashlane seamlessly autofills all of your login information, syncing automatically across your computer, phone, and tablet. It even stores payment details. So go ahead and get weird with your passwords, or let Dashlane generate a real stumper for you. They'll keep it safely stored in a password vault only you can unlock. Check out www.dashlane.com flop to get Dashlane free on your first device. As a special offer for the Flophouse fans, they're even offering a 30-day free trial of Dashlane Premium, including VPN, VPN, pardon me, dark web, and dark web monitoring. Sorry, there was a line break. I, they're not offering the dark web to you. <laughs> dark web monitoring. Wow, Elliot's eyes lit up in excitement. <laughs> and more. Oh, what what corridors the- of the uh, the internet superhighway? Can he- <laughs> if you if you like Dashlane, use code. Flop at checkout to save 10% on your premium subscription. I was just thinking that the dark web would be a great place for me to sell all these bags of jubers that I have, that I haven't been able to unload. Now, now guys, I think I realized one of the problems with an otherwise flawless product, which is, okay. I, I mentioned those famous names, but the famous names are just kind of to get you in the door. I couldn't get the rights to the likenesses to a lot of different famous oh, okay. jubers. So so most of the juber candies are just look like my relatives, like my Uncle Gary, uh-huh. my brother, okay. like... My Aunt Wendy, like my Uncle Lou. Yeah, like, they're all, that... they all, there's a little asterisk on the box, and it says artist impression. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like uh, some, uh, some, my, my, uh, some of my great-grandparents, like great-grandpa Eddie, you know, gra- my great-aunt Leah. So, like, do you think that was it, that people were not that interested in candy-shaped, like, Jews they had never heard of? <laughs> Could be. I, I thought you were going to say that they were, because you can get the uh, rights, they were just shaped like normal gummy bears. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean isn't, a, ju- wait, isn't a goober a chocolate-covered, like, raisin or a peanut or some shit? A goober no, is, d- it, yeah. It was, I just stole the name. I didn't... It, look, there's still chewy gummy candies. I, mean, I, guess, it, not, <laughs> I oh. guess if you say G, a hard G sound, <laughs> you could make it... No, no, jubers are different. Anyway, yeah. like, yeah, so I guess people didn't want to eat, like, 
a candy in the shape of my dad's cousin Shelly. <laughs> is that uh, possible? I, that's, I find that baffling, but... <laughs> Um, so you guys have jumbotrons that I sent to you. Who wants to go uh, first? I, hmm, it looks like I'm Stuart has go. his. I'm okay. ready to go with a jumbotron. Why don't you go first, Stu? Okay. Do you need to interrupt me again? <laughs> <laughs> cool. Let's do this thing. Uh, this message is for Ben and Chip. The message is from Lucy and Kudo. I was going to get a Jumbotron celebrating the first anniversary of your move to New York, but I forgot. So instead, here's one for the 15-month anniversary. Unless this airs after uh, September, or in this case, Smallvember. In which case, it's the thought that counts. Anyway, hooray for you! I love you, I'm proud of you, and I'm still very jealous that you get to go to Hinterlands. Uh, that's Hinterlands Bar, located at 739 Church Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. And you should be jealous, because even if Stuart and Charlene didn't own it, I think it would be one of my favorite bars. Oh, bless you. That's very nice. Um, and bless uh, this message. It's a very lovely sentiment. Speaking of lovely sentiments, here comes another one. This message is for Dale, and the message is from Sage, Ivy, and Katie. And that message is, hey, Dadalo, whether you're building a weeping angel statue, making movies shorts, or dancing to 80s new wave, you're the coolest cat around. Thank you for getting us into bad movies through MST3K and the Neil Breen Cinematic Universe. Happy 53rd birthday. Love you forever from your daughters, Sage and Ivy, and your wife, Katie. That's very sweet. What a wonderful birthday message. We got um, some sweet messages. Oh wow, uh, Archie is looking adorable on the couch right now. Sorry, and, uh, you know, and that's the cat report for today. <laughs> <That's the cat. laughs> I was just thinking, you know what would go great with those sweet messages is the sweetness you get only in a delicious chewy candy like Jubers. <laughs> get in touch with me now, Elliot. Uh, uh, recently, you've been taking care of uh, the live show info. Do you have that information? I do up? indeed, because it's called preparation. We've got some live shows coming up now. When this episode airs, there will still be time to buy some tickets for the Late Show in Boston. That's on September 28th in Boston. We'll be at DBUR City Space, which I think is technically in Brookline, but we're calling it Boston. Anyway, we're doing two shows that night. The 7 p.m. show, where we'll be talking about Alita, Battle Angel, is sold out. But there are still a few tickets left for the 9.45 show, where we'll be talking about Godzilla, King of the Monsters. That's right. As I said earlier in another episode, it's a double colon night. Alita, colon, Battle Angel at 7. Godzilla, colon, King of the Monsters at 9.45. We'll be doing different shows. We'll be doing... I know Dan and I, and I think you two, Stu, will be doing different presentations for each show. Yeah. Uh, I'm definitely... So, uh, I've been putting a lot of work into my uh, my definitive presentation on the history of the Fast and Furious franchise. Mm-hmm. So I'm very excited about this. I will say that my, so, my first presentation, as befitting the early show, is a little more all ages. The second gets a little blue which is uh, great mine is, because actually the, mine is actually the reverse i think <laughs> which is great because the uh the venue uh the audience has a giant glass window behind them so anybody oh, walking down the street taking their kids out for an ice cream can see your gross ass <laughs> shit <laughs> oh, i totally for, totally forgot about that i should switch the order of my presentations uh so that's boston and at september 28th two different shows if you can stomach the idea of spending multiple hours with us i would advise you to go to both shows if you would like uh because of we're doing a late show 
Uh, this is just a note that if you want to get any merchandise signed from us, we are more likely to be signing for a short amount of time before the shows or between the two shows. I don't think we're going to have time after the last show, but we'll get to that. Uh, and the other live show coming up is in L.A., Los Angeles. That's right. I love L.A., a song we didn't hear earlier in the show at all. October 12th on 2019, that'll be at the Regent Theater at 7 p.m., and we're going to be talking about Dark Phoenix, the movie that killed the X-Men franchise. Oh boy, can't wait. I'm sure two comic heads like me and Stu will be excited to point out all the differences Dan between likes, the series. Dan likes comics too, like yeah, uh, he likes comics Crazy Cat it- and Yellow Kid. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, Dan. I mean not the yellow kid. <laughs> I don't know. You you have it placed prominently on your shelf, right next no. to your, your book of erotica. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, so, it's true. I do like a lot of old comics, but it's not like I don't know, like the Cats and Jammer Kids. Or he's like, if it wasn't in Bill Blackbeard's basement, then I don't want to <laughs> read it. Anyway, so that's September twenty eighth, twenty nineteen, in Boston. Two different shows. Early show sold out. Late show not sold out. If you want some tickets to it. L.A. show, October 12th, and we're going to be talking some big blockbuster movies. All that information is, of course, also available at flophousepodcast.com slash events. That's also where you can buy tickets, flophousepodcast.com slash events for those shows. Mm-hmm. I think that's it for this sort of thing. Plugs. That's it for the episode. Mm-hmm. Goodbye, everybody. No, no, no. This section. Oh, Dan, do you, Dan, do you want to mention our new merch real quick? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, as I said before, our merch contest is over. We selected two great uh, designs, and they're both available now at uh, Tapatico under the Maximum Fun section of the—I st- the, think the site is—I uh, think it is organized. You, it's, it's subheading podcast, subheading Maximum Fun, and then you can find the Flophouse merch there. And uh, there is a link to that. If you you can just Google Topatico, or you can go to our website again and click on the merch tab. Yeah, it's Topatico. That's T O P A T O C O dot com slash collections slash maximum dash fun. So maybe just Google. Yeah, maximum and fun, just remember, it's never too early to start buying holiday gifts. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's holidays all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't want to spoil anything, but I actually bought holiday gifts for both of you just this week. Oh, oh, no. that's really nice. Uh, so I guess I'll go to the store. <laughs> I guess I should get you something. I'm just, I'm just saying I'm showing the foresight as a gift giver that I never show as a podcaster. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a harder skill to market, I guess, but that's okay. Um, I feel like that's the inverse of Mark Maron. Although he's a great actor, I imagine he's not the best gift giver, but whatever. <laughs> Let That's us, just based on the character I get from his show. Sure, let, sure. Us, let us move along. Uh, I re- uh, this is a, sorry. This is the letter segment. I should just start <laughs> reading a letter. <laughs> this is where we now, Dan. But at least you got the presents bought, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> this is where we uh, take letters from listeners. Kind of wish there was a dash lane for the structure of this podcast, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, there is. It's what I use. I literally type up an agenda and i just look at it through the whole episode but you know i haven't said this in a while because we have a huge backlog of letters actually that we'll never ever get to but if you do want to send a letter again go to the the easiest way is to go to our website and click on the contact page but um that'd be flophousepodcast.com the aforementioned website that dan felt it was not necessary to tell you the url of so we're not we're not going to be here till inbox zero is what you're saying no it's never gonna happen (laughs) 
Uh, I mean, maybe if there's a precipitous drop in our popularity, we'll. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I hope Who knows? that After is not going to happen. Who knows? Not it's going possible. Away. Anyway, moving on to letters, as I was saying, uh, letters from listeners, listeners like you. This first letter is from Alicia, last name withheld. Mm -hmm. Silverstone. Alicia writes, I recently had the misfortune to be put through a newer movie, (laughs) The Art of Racing in the Rain. Uh I really hated it and was gratified to see that the critics on Rotten Tomatoes did too, giving it an overall score of 42%. Weirdly, at least to me, Audiences seem to like it, handing it a 96% approval rating. I was quite surprised since the movie is full of very routine cliches, one I would dub, ones that I would dub tiresome at best. It yeah, but that's me- a movie filled with dogs, right? Like, mm-hmm. people love fucking dogs, man. They love their dogs. And yeah, uh, That's but the why problem White is, God is... was such a huge hit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Boy, this dog. But I mean... <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the the art of racing in the rain does feature the actor who played Jess on Gilmore Girls, so automatically that's a not watch for me. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure he's fine. The character, uh, was mm, character is terrible. terrible. It's like how my parents could never watch uh, Mad About You because they held so much anger over Paul Reiser's character in Aliens. <laughs> <laughs> I like to pretend they're the same character, or that the Paul Reiser character in Aliens is the child of the characters in Mad About You. Oh, cool, yeah. Uh, okay, moving on to the rest of the letter. Yeah. It made me wonder if I was missing a bigger picture, and I was also curious about what you would say about it. Do you guys see this wide of a disagreement between audience and critic scores often? And if so, what are some movies where the critics panned it, but audiences ate it up? If you're so inclined to speculate, what accounts for this difference? Thanks, guys, and keep flopping. Sincerely, Alicia, last name withheld. I think now, that, I'm gonna. Well, I'd like to. I'd like to jump in and say sure. that some movies that critics panned and audiences ate up. All of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like well, this happens constantly. It happens. It happens with a lot of comedies. I find right. Or like Transformers movies. <laughs> oh uh, yeah. Often I'll look up a movie on Wikipedia and it'll say like on Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic it has you know. 39%. Audience cinema score audiences gave it a B plus or an A minus. Yeah, I think it's there's most I think my theory is that the critics and the audience members are coming at it from two different points of view. Critics are coming at it from a I mean sophisticated is the wrong word but a craft point of view whereas audiences are coming at it from a sheer pure physical experience emotion point mm-hmm. of view, which is not necessarily wrong, but it's why like when when the when the writer when Alicia says that it was just full of clichés like audiences like a lot of those like that there are cliches because they make people feel a certain way and people like to feel that way but that's just my theory i mean the other thing that goes along with what you were just saying especially about cliches is that critics see so many more movies than audiences so they are more sensitive to cliche like they're often looking more for something that takes something on from a novel or uh like very specific direction and, uh, I mean, you know, it's, like, the same way that, like, if you're really into, like, any particular genre, like, over time, mm-hmm. I think you're drawn to, like, the purest forms of that genre or, like, the out outliers, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like the analogy about, like, eating peppers, like, eating spicy food, that, like, if you've never eaten spicy food, even the slightest bit spicy food is going to be exciting. But if you're, like, a crazy, if you're a crazy heat seeker... Uh, anything <laughs> like short of like a ghost pepper is not going to fucking make it twitch. Yeah, and the well, and the idea that like uh, a newbie who uh, chows down on a ghost pepper would like 
wreck their palate. They would hate it, which is why well, the it, the Metacritic score of the Ghost Pepper, the critic review, would be very high, <laughs> but the audience re- uh, review would be very low. Which are usually the movies I like. Well, that's <laughs> what well, I still haven't seen. A Quiet Place, but it reminds me what listening to you guys and other people talk about it was like. If you're really into horror movies and scare movies already, it wasn't that impressive. But if you're an audience that doesn't usually see those types of movies, I'm sure it was. It felt much more new to you, whereas something like Mandy, which is what someone who's drenched in horror all the time would gravitate towards because it's new and strange and weird, that would be a ghost pepper for most people. Yeah, yeah. Like, what or am the, I even looking at? Or the touchstones uh, it uses are a little more like esoteric. Yeah, yes. I, yeah. It's funny that you bring Quiet Place up because like. I was talking about this question just yesterday, and that was the exact example I gave. Like, and I, I have gotten in trouble before, like by sort of referring to Quiet Place as like, like beginner horror. But that's fine if like horror is not a thing that you normally like. Like Quiet Place is skillfully made. It's not for me because like I've seen a lot of movies like that before. So I'm like, okay, this is what it is, you know? Yeah, I like I I find anytime I'm a lot of times when I'm talking about like comics, comic mm-hmm. books with people. A lot of modern comics that uh, people use as a gateway, like th- uh, books that get them really excited, I end up not caring for because it, it feels too rudimentary to me. Or like it feels like some guy shat out of yeah. like a failed TV pilot that they decide to like <laughs> lazily draw. But and by the whatever. way, we, by the way, we, <laughs> I like Stuart. You were like maybe that's on me for for being too esoteric, but also maybe they just shat out this thing. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, subtweet, subtweet. Yeah. By the way, I want to say I want to say that we. Realize that we're sounding like insufferable snobs right yeah, now. Yeah, I'm a real asshole. <laughs> no, but I think I think what we're saying is that like in certain things we are snobs, and so we understand why someone who is not a snob would find more enjoyment in a thing that we find dull. Yeah, uh, because they're not that they're not a snob about it. It's like the th- I think something that a, a specific movie that this it's not exactly the same thing, but uh, recently most of the critics gave Lion King like a pretty subpar review and they were like there's no reason to make this the animals don't show any emotion there's already this great version of it but audiences i mean it's the number one animated movie in the history of the world right now like uh, i mean it's money. not it's not animated it was uh live action <laughs> uh Stu, i hate to break it to you it's entirely animated there's no real things in the whole movie but for audiences when they're watching it they're just like lion king I love these songs. There's a bunch of animals jumping around. Uh-huh. Like this is, I have a place to take my child for two hours when it's hot out. Like, fine, <laughs> okay, let's go see Lion King. Like, I th- they're they're coming at it from a dip. They're, I feel like when a critic watches a movie, they're like, why does this movie exist? And it has to justify its existence. And when an audience uh-huh. watches a movie, even when they don't like it, they're like, eh, movie that was fun. Okay, moving yeah. along. Which did is I fine. did I feel like I wasted my time? Did I? Yeah. Did it exactly. force me to look at my phone the whole time, et cetera? Like if you don't if if an audience member doesn't hate a movie, then they're probably fine with it. You know, mediocre is fine, and that's not because they don't have this great sophisticated palette that everybody needs. It's because Man. they're they're using it for a different purpose than the critic is, or that you or I might. What fucking snobs we are! Yeah, today. yeah. Let's okay. move on. Before I said it was okay. I said <laughs> yeah, it's fine. I know, but it just still sounds condescending. Moving on to Alex, last name withheld. Who writes on a recent episode? You were reminiscing about the Gremlin storybooks which came with EP records of someone reading the narrative. I purchased these books on eBay not long ago because I was volunteering with an after-school tutoring program working with a first grader who was struggling with reading and focus. For some unimaginable reason in the 21st century, this child was obsessed with the Gremlins franchise. 
I pretended because it's dis- a great franchise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I pretended to discover the books on the shelf of the tutoring program, and they're at least a partial success in helping him to sight read words like Mogwai and Gizmo. Useful in life. <laughs> That's great. Um, <laughs> uh, it was only at this child's insistence that I watched Gremlins two for the first time, and boy, did he steer me right. Previously, I had watched Jurassic Park 3 because of a fifth grader's insistence that it was the best of the series, an opinion I do not share, though I respect the third installment's lean focus on thrilling action rather than attempting to rekindle Spielbergian wonder. That was a little review of Jurassic Park 3. <laughs> yeah, yeah, slip it in there. Somebody's letterbox uh, <laughs> account uh, just <laughs> breached the fucking Matrix. <laughs> uh, what, what generationally inappropriate movies or other media did you guys obsess with Obsessed with as children, cordially. Alex' last name withheld. Yeah, I mean, like, I I think this is tailor made made for for Elliot, who was uh, born out of time. But I want to jump in first and say, like, there, you know, like there was stuff like, I don't know, like the Marx Brothers or like old show tunes or whatever that like I got into because not only having parents who were older when I when I was born. And like, and brothers who are much. I mean, older they were than older me. than you. Well, I mean, they. Because that's they how had, it's supposed to work. They had me later in life than many people have children, and also my brothers are ten and thirteen years older. So, like, how a does, lot of that was. How does that make you feel? Does it make like fine? I don't know, like, I don't have any. You don't feel like an afterthought or anything. No, I. Uh, my mom, my mom, and I were washing dishes one time, and like, when I was like about sixteen, and apropos of nothing, she turned to me and said, "You were planned, by the way." And I guess, like, she figured, like, oh, you know, he's reaching an age where he'd be, like, doing the math and, think- and like, yeah. wondering about that. And I'm just like, I, mean, I don't she, care. You know, in, like, in that kind of a situation, you want to get out in front of it anyway, whether I mean, or not yeah, that's I mean, the case. I, you, if I was you, let me finish. If I was you, Dan, I'd just, I'd just be proud of my parents for as many couples are relinquishing <sighs> their grasp on intimacy as they get older, that your uh-huh. parents held on to it and were still expressing their love for each other in yeah. a really wonderful and very you know, physical way. And I think that's great. Well, I was going to say that um, I didn't care because it didn't matter to me the way I got into the world as long as I'm here. But you just made me uncomfortable with it for the first time in my <laughs> life. So thanks for that. But, You're uh, welcome. But other than like... Just uh, sometimes it feels better to raw dog, you know? <laughs> other than... Uh, other than... <laughs> no. <laughs> other than the stuff I inherited from the older members of my family... Like I don't, I don't know. Like I got into reading a bunch of Houdini biographies as a kid. I was fascinated by him. Like he had a very fascinating life, and I have no idea why I was so into him, other than I, by happenstance, picked up sort of like a child's biography of his from the Uh library, and it triggered something. And I read a bunch of other books, including you know more adult biographies. and I think sometimes it just works by like weird chance that something strikes your fancy. But what mm-hmm. do you guys think? I mean, when I was a teenager, uh, I listened. Uh, I was listening to a lot of uh, Steely Dan, which is strange <laughs> since I am neither a middle-aged man or a baby boomer. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of the same thing. <laughs> but uh, the the when when you uh, you sent this uh, question to us in advance, and it it got me thinking about how when I was a kid. We were staying uh, at a vacation house, and I found a collection of an old comic strip called Scroogey. It's a, uh, it's like a baseball comic strip, and I remember being like 
totally obsessed with it and I was like drawing the characters and I have like even googling it now was hard for me to find it (laughs) googling like baseball comic strip it took me I had to go through a lot of pages before I think I found what it was (laughs) (laughs) and like you said it was all happenstance (laughs) when I knocked over that uh, that thing and the map fell out and then I followed the map to the ancient (laughs) pharaoh's tomb and uh, (laughs) Yeah, you had to unlock, you had to decode the Rebus. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I just always liked stuff that was older. I mean, I I grew up in the, as a kid, mainly in the 1990s, Uh which I still kind of see as the nadir of human civilization and Uh American society in a lot of ways. I I mean, it it was a time of peace and and a relative, you know... uh, uh, non-unrest as as there is, like i mean right now is a pretty terrible time well no but. well maybe maybe it's because of that that the art and culture of the 90s that i was being exposed to at least as a adolescent teen yeah. uh was not about interesting things but was instead about like young people who couldn't figure out what to do with their lives in their 20s and yeah, it's the, also the when, malaise of the time yeah and it's also like when uh when irony infected everything. And I often, I think as a kid, I looked back on older things and I liked the sincerity of them because in the 90s is when like every commercial couldn't be like, here's our product. We really like it a lot. You'll like it too, which was what the 80s commercials were Mm -hmm. like. And instead all the commercials were like, hey man, I'm going to pretend I'm from the 50s or something, dude. And the joke is that I'm uncool. And that's what's cool about it. And it was like, oh, forget it. Like it was too much. Or it's just weird nonsense like Quiznos rats or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And so, I don't know. And, you know, so maybe people like that stuff. I don't. But I just always liked older things. What are you going to do? I mean, when yeah. I was in... You were saying you, in, you mainly like it for the politics that they espouse. The <laughs> politics, uh, and especially the racial politics. I was very into. Yeah, of course. It was so... It was... Everything just... Everyone just knew their place back then. Terrible. Oh boy. But, uh... <laughs> even, that, but that was the hard thing. But that was the hard thing as a kid, like, even watching those things and knowing... There's things about this that are not okay with me now, but there are things that are okay. But like, you know, when I was really into, it wasn't just old movies. Like I was really into like Goethe's version of Faust, which yeah. I would read over and over again, and like the Divine you, Comedy you I would prefer read that, over and over again. Like, you prefer that to the Marlowe version of Faust? I do prefer it to the Marlowe version of Faust. I think it's more interesting. Okay, that's and a the, different different podcast. We'll talk about that. <laughs> but, I think, but I think a lot of what I was drawn to in that stuff I think, was like... I think that's the bonus episode this year, guys. <laughs> A lot of <laughs> yeah, our Faust off. Yeah. Uh, it's Faust Bu- Faustuary. That's the month we talk about Faust. And I'll just sit but, uh, on the, I'll sit on the side, being like, "What?" And of course, I've never read. There's that comic book Faust, which I never read, which is like the evil Wolverine who just killed people who were having sex. Well, I never understood what that was. Yeah, about. Well, you, anyway. you guys, you guys can talk about the two versions of Faust, and I'll talk about Phantom of the Paradise based on the Faust story. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so, I mean, it's really based on Phantom of the Opera, right? Well, it's split. We'll talk about it okay. on the bonus yeah, episode. It'll be in the Faust off. <laughs> like many, Robert De- like many uh, uh, Brian De Palma films, it is split. <laughs> <laughs> Cinematography humor. All right. But uh, the uh, but anyway, I think what I was drawn to was more than anything else, like emotions and ideas that felt like the author of whatever the work was was like, yes, this is something I want to tell you or I want you to feel. Whereas in the '90s, it was a lot of like. It's uncool to own any ideas or emotions, and you have to like pretend you don't care about things. So yeah, I think an, that's what it was about. An ironic distance me. that seems to continue in popularity to this day. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, because it's hard to undo that, you yeah. know. Uh, we have a final letter. It's from Steve, last name withheld, who writes, 
The original Peaches regularly discussed the upkeep slash mortgage situation on Nicolas Cage's European Castle Collection, mm-hmm. and the black market dinosaur skull has been mentioned. But I feel like the two albino king cobras he purchased may be his most eccentric financial decision. It's not like live animals appreciate in value, so he must just <laughs> have really liked the idea of having albino cobras. Discuss. Steve, last name. With well, me. I mean, I think he's overlooking the possibility that these two albino king cobras could mate and produce additional albino mm. cu- uh, killing mm. cobras that you could yeah. then sell for money to other eccentrics. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, I mean, but you know maybe I don't, also, I, feel like I think I'd. F- I was going to say maybe also like sometimes you can't really put a price on a good snuggle, and I don't think any animal <laughs> snuggles as well as a king cobra. You know, I, I, I. Uh, well, I, I think that would be true if they were constrictors, which they're not. Yeah, I googled this, uh, <laughs> and the first thing that came up was a uh, an article with the headline: Nicholas Cage had two pet king cobras, and they kept trying to kill him. <laughs> so. Oh, the, uh, the subhead is good, too. Quote, they would try to hypnotize me by showing me their backs, and then they'd lunge at me, said the actor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess you use what you got, you know? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know why the back is the most hypnotic part of the cobra. I mean, that's the, oh, it's got that design on it and everything? Yeah, that's the, that's, uh, okay. I mean, that's the biology of them. Oh, boy. It's like an anglerfish. You know, I don't, you know, I don't know why you would have... A cobra, like I would not have. I, I assume that these are poisonous snakes, as as cobras are. I don't know why you would keep one of those. I mean, a constrictor, I barely understand. But they the look hugs. cool, Dan. They yeah. look real cool, and it's. I think a lot of it is just conversation pieces. Yeah. Also, because like Nicholas if- Cage strikes me as the kind of guy who doesn't always know what to say to guests in his house. <laughs> so he go, "Hey, take a look at my uh, my uh, cobras over there." Because he doesn't want to make small talk. He doesn't know what to say. Yeah, he doesn't and then bring that's out the, the whole conversation. Set. Where'd you get these cobras? What are they like? Oh, they're always trying to hypnotize me and bite me. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting story. Because uh, yeah. what else is he, he going to talk to the PTA group that's meeting at his house that night to plan the ice cream social about? I, I mean, I have a different view, which is that I don't think that Nicolas Cage has a hard time with small talk because I don't think he knows what small talk is. I think that unprompted, even if the cobras weren't around, he would probably start talking about the cobras to you. But that's just my vision of Nick Cage. I well, think so we let's, all let's, carry one. Let's in our act heads. out. The, let's role play the situation. Okay, Dan, I'm okay. Nicholas Cage, and you are someone who's waiting for a bus next to Nicholas Cage. Okay. Okay. Uh, now, what are you doing that you're that, you know, while you're waiting for this bus? So, wait, hold on. Am I am I striking up a conversation, or is Nicholas Cage striking this conversation? That's up to you. You're, you see Nicholas Cage, the famous actor, right next to you, and you're waiting for a bus. What do you all do? Right. Do you just say like, "Oh, that's Nicholas Cage. I'm too nervous," or do you do you introduce yourself? Yeah, I sorry that that's another wrinkle that I hadn't even thought of. That I you know I would be aware that he's a famous actor. I'm like, and also oh. and also keep in mind that your character was recently fired from their job as a sanitation worker. <laughs> okay, uh-huh. that's important backstory. I because think... it turned out that they were smuggling drugs inside the trash cans. Okay, is that a minute work thing? I can't. I mean, uh, you're not at work anymore. He wasn't in the movie Minute Work. Okay, I just, I'm just curious. It was such, it was so specific that I didn't know whether it was from something. So I'm just trying to build this character so you have a yeah. base to launch from I mean, in the conversation with Nicolas Cage. I, I don't think that is going to play into the conversation, but it is important for a character to have a secret for themselves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So and, and so Nicolas Cage's secret is that he has two albino cobras. <laughs> <Okay. so. laughs> 
we'll, let's see let's see how that plays out in this conversation okay so okay. Dan, now, now you, do you feel like you so, need help striking up a conversation because no, I, I would gladly play the character uh i'll say dan well, okay. <laughs> hey it's me dan hey bud uh did you see hey is that a rare first appearance of Superman comic book sticking out of that guy's bag. You're a huge Superman fan. You should go talk to him. Oh, wait, hold on. I think I reckon... Sir, are you Nicolas Cage? Uh, that's question number one. Question two, if if so, why are you taking the bus? Uh, I have two albino cobras. <laughs> okay. Um, that's a weird gambit to start with. But, I mean, that seems dangerous, Mr. Cage. Uh, why would you do that? To, to answer your other questions, uh, my car is in the shop because uh, it has two albino cobras in it, and I'm afraid to open the doors because they might bite me, and I thought the garage might be able to handle it. And what was your other question again? Um, uh, why do you have two albino cobras? I have two albino cobras. I'm, you know, I'm just so happy that he's, uh, after losing his job, he found somebody he could talk to. Uh, <laughs> It's just a monologue, just sort of out to the yeah. <laughs> No, I'm talking to another person waiting for the bus. <laughs> All right. Well, now, now, if now I'm on my way to buy two more albino cobras, I got a lead on them on the other side of town. <laughs> Sir, I. It seems to me that the first two have caused a lot of problems in your life. Why are you uh-huh. going to multiply the number of albino cobras you have? Well, it's addition. I'm adding to, well, I'm multiplying. I mean, it's two, I guess that's true. It's, I mean, it is two times two, though, also. But I'm adding two, two plus that's, two. You're, <laughs> wow, I'm having a math argument with Nicholas Cage. When I woke up this morning, I didn't think I would. this would be... Oh, I'm so honored, sir. I mean, uh, no, the honor's all uh, mine. You've given me a lot to chew on. Uh, much like the albino cobras I had hoped to chew on. Uh, at some point, but they wanted to chew on me. Well, now, this is now a my plan new piece is, of information. Now, to answer your larger question, uh, I'm hoping that they cancel each other out. <laughs> I don't know. This I gotta say, this seems a little bit like a old lady who swallowed the flies situation. I mean, you're not using a different animal to take care of the first animals, but you are multiplying your problems by trying to take care of an animal with an animal. Okay, hey, two, uh, three points. Three points to that. Three points to that. Okay. One, it's addition, as mentioned before, not multiplication. I'll stand by that. Two, who better, who better to take on an animal than another animal? Because only an animal can think like an animal. And number three, yes, I did swallow a fly. I'm not an old lady. Now I feel like a mongoose would be the traditional solution if you're looking for uh, to an get rid animal. of the fly that I swallowed. Okay. That doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to escalate straight from swallowing a fly to swallowing a mongoose. Although, if it would give me the speed and the poison absorbing powers of the mongoose, then the king cobras would not be such a problem because I could just survive the poison. <laughs> now are you maybe maybe be... you should you should ask his number. You should ask for his number. Maybe you, you don't have dinner plans. I mean, we are dinner plans best friends at this point, basically. <laughs> this is the longest conversation I've had in the past three years. Sir, uh, I would love to have dinner with you to ask you whether you think that swallowing animals gives you, gives you their powers. So... <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, mean I, I realize I'll probably have to pick you up since your car's in the shop. <laughs> yeah, although I'll go get it. I mean, I'll see if the guy I'm meeting has a mongoose, and then I can just swallow that, and then I can drive the car. I'll pick you up, but I'll just have four king cobras in the back seat. All right, if well, you, here... <laughs> you swallow a mongoose, and you'll be fine. Well, here's my card. Disregard the part about being a sanitation worker, because that's no longer true. 
Oh, but it's still your per- it's your personal number. It's not your work number. <laughs> no, it's my personal. I I use cell phone. All right. Well, <laughs> I guess that's it for the. Oh no! Here comes the bus. Uh, we're both getting on the bus. Let's go talk to each other for a little bit longer. Uh, okay, I'm gonna run and answer the door because I think I have a package coming. But that's true. That's not me. At the bus stop. That seems so strange. <laughs> So, so uh, uh, yeah, did, did you, I mean, yeah, you guys should exchange numbers. He doesn't, he doesn't have a lot of friends and, you know, he's kind of in a downturn for his life. Uh, I get, you seem I've to be there. on upswing. Did you say you were an actor? Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm an actor. I'm in movies usually. Uh, but I, I prefer to consider myself a private actor. I do most of my acting in a small closet in my house. That's where I do my best work just for me. Oh, my friend's back from his house where he was receiving a package. Uh, he would talk, but he's too busy cracking it up. Hey, guys, I thought it'd be fun to see what this package was on air. Now, so let's now, now Dan, I'm not uh, I'm not offended that you went to answer the door to get the package. I am a little offended you are not waiting till the podcast is done to open the no, package. I thought it would be a fun bit. Uh, it's a water pick water flosser, which I got because uh-huh. I went to the dentist on Friday, uh-huh. and they said I really need to start taking better care of my teeth. Now, not that this isn't fascinating, but should we move on to the final segment of the show since we've gone completely off the rails to the point where I don't know where the rails are? Um, Yeah, let's uh, do recommendations of movies that you should watch, probably instead of The Joke Thief. Life is short. Um, But if you want to do So you're saying we should watch the TV show Life is Short? Mm Mm-hmm. That's a show? Uh, That's Life's Too Short, I think. Oh, Life's Too Short. I'm sorry. Um, so I'm going to recommend, uh, I'm going to recommend a movie that I think just went on VOD today. So a week ago or whatever, depending on when you listen to this, um, <laughs> I'm going to recommend a goofy horror comedy that was, uh, I think produced, uh, or distributed by Fangoria called Satanic Panic. Uh, it's kind of a goofy throwback to classic, like, uh, I don't want to say slashers, but like, I don't know, and or horror comedies, but it it's reminiscent of a lot of like '80s horror tropes. Uh, think of if you use Ty West's House of the Devil as a starting point, and you make it much sillier. It's kind of like that. Uh, you know, uh, Rebecca Romaine and Jerry O'Connell both uh, turn in really fun performances, and it also features a performance by the sister of my buddy Bowman Modine, Ruby Modine, uh, who are both. Children of Matthew Modine. So, uh, yeah, check it out. Uh, I would like to recommend a movie called Always Shine, which I uh, got to because... So our our uh, Max Fun, I don't know, co... What, what, what would you call it? Someone on another Max Fun thing. Uh, April Max Wolf, Fun Neighbor. Max Fun Neighbor, April Wolf of <clears throat> Switchblade Sisters is... Uh, co-writing a Black Christmas remake, or probably by this point has... Comes out in December. Yeah, yeah, yeah they already have a trailer. Don't uh, watch the yeah. trailer. It gives too much away, okay. apparently. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> Take that, April. Because... No, I, mean, that's... <laughs> I mean, that's what she said. <laughs> oh. <laughs> because, because I was reading about that movie, I uh, found myself uh, reading about the director's previous movie, Always Shine, which I was intrigued by, and I decided to watch, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. It had it's a basically a two-hander, uh, a two women, Mackenzie Davis, who I liked oh, quite yeah. a bit from *Halt, Catch Fire* and *Blade Runner 2049*, and uh, Caitlin Fitzgerald, who was also excellent. And um, <clears throat> it's a movie about two actresses who, in different ways, are sort of dealing with 
the inherent uh, sexism of the industry, and one of them is doing far better than the other because she's sort of playing the game, going along to get along, and the other is uh, a much better actress, but she's quote-unquote difficult. So, like, they're at two different points in their career, and they're like, you know, the kind of people who were friends before and maybe are still friends out of habit more than anything else because they are the more successful one is sort of constantly undermining the less successful and the less successful is filled with bitterness and they go on a trip together and things get hairy and uh i liked it a lot i think that, I mean, is it, it because they run into bigfoot yes <laughs> i think that like it's interesting i i was reading the reviews of it and uh the top the top two reviews were by one was by April Wolf, and I wonder whether that's how they got connected up because she was an admirer. And the other was actually by a uh, another female film critic who I've gotten to know recently uh, off air, Kimber Myers, and both of them were pretty glowing about it. And I think that it's striking that they're two of the only female critics who watch it because I do think that watching it as a man, like it's not necessarily built for me in the same way as it might be for uh, a, a woman viewer because it is so much about uh, just hidden sexism in day-to-day life or not so hidden sexism. Yeah. So it, it probably would strike someone who has to deal with that directly harder, mm-hmm. but I still liked it quite a bit. So always shine. So you're saying it's strong enough for a man, but it's made for a woman. <laughs> yes. That is what I'm saying. Uh, Elliot, what uh, do you have? I'm going to recommend a movie that uh, it's like... Less a movie and more just a hangout, and it's was a it's a movie that was released in England under the name Nothing Like a Dame, but it's available in America under the name Tea with the Dames, and it is a filmed kind of like day of talk between the actresses Eileen Atkins, Judi Dench, Joan Plowright, and Maggie Smith as they talk about kind of their experiences as actresses at the top of British acting for the past you know sixty years uh, or so. And there's a lot of great uh, footage of them at different ages playing different types of roles. And you really get a sense of them as people in a way and how their different, you know, uh, travels through the British thespian system uh, have been for them. But also it's just like really, they're really fun to hang out with. There's a lot of like catty older lady talk about like Laurence Olivier and things like that. So if you enjoy uh, English actresses and if you enjoy... uh, greats of the British theater and film, then uh, why not watch Tea with the Dames if you're in the United States or Nothing Like a Dame if you're in England. Uh, and it's just super fun and breezy and a even when they get into serious topics and things like getting older or regrets they might have or experiences of not being taken seriously or being savaged by critics, there's still this like uh, fun to the whole thing. So anyway, I enjoyed it a lot. Go ahead and watch it. Well, guys, uh, I got to say, uh, I always enjoy hanging out with you two on the podcast, but I always feel like there's a little extra zazz when we watch one of these crazy, stupid, small movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I had a lot of fun. That's because uh, uh, Mr. Zazz is here. Let's just let him in. No, no, don't. <laughs> He's a murderer. <laughs> um, uh, and we have one more coming up, another uh, Small Timber episode. And then that's the last episode, right? No, then we the series. Then we go into Shocktober. The other oh, oh yeah. right. 
And then we go into November, the month with no theme. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we go... That's where the theme is no theme, right? Yeah, exactly. Before we go, I want to say thank you, as always, to Maximum Fun, our network. They uh, help us actually be able to do this because we get money through their system. So thank you for that. And they're great. We have a lot of fun being on the network. There's a lot of other great shows. Why don't you check out Switchblade Sisters, for instance, which I talked about already. And while we're talking about it, I feel bad I haven't done this before. Uh, I mentioned on the show that Max Fun has been taking over a lot of the production duties from me, which is great. It's, mm-hmm. it's made me enjoy doing the show vastly more. So I just wanted to take a moment to thank Jordan, our editor, who I, I, I've been laughing. I would say producer. Mm-hmm. Producer editor, uh, co-producer <laughs> editor, in uh, uh, I want to thank her for all the great work she does. Uh, and I want to apologize on behalf of Dan for uh, I don't know <laughs> for everything. <laughs> just for a lot just, of, just just fucking a lot around of here, you know. So uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to the Max Fun Network, and thanks to everyone involved. Uh, if you like this show. Please, why not tell someone about it? Leave a positive review on iTunes, why don't you? Uh, tweet about it. Instagram about it. Tell people about it. Uh, actually, the iTunes review thing would be super helpful. Why don't you go do that? Uh, and why not come see us live on one of those show dates in Boston in just a couple weeks or in L.A. in October? If you don't live nearby, that's fine. Just fly out for it. Don't worry about well, the carbon footprint. Yeah. Well, Stuart and I have started looking at our phones, so you know what that means. We've reached uh, the end of another episode. <laughs> So for the Flophouse, I've been Dan McCoy. Hey, I'm still Stuart Wellington. And I'm Elliot Kalen. Or am I Nicholas Cage? Well, oh, here we only, go again. Only two to four Cobras will know for sure. <laughs> See you next time. Bye. Now, Dr. Giggles. Okay, let's get into the show. <laughs> prime Dr. Was he Giggles. a comedian? <laughs> I don't know. No, he's a murderous dentist. Okay. okay. So, uh, and he's not oh, even a dentist. Like... He's like a murderous doctor. Is it laughing a murderous doctor. Is that why he's called Dr. Giggles? Uh, I think he, I believe like, that's he it. giggles, yeah. Okay. This is like calling card. <laughs> it's not really a calling it's, card. The police don't know that he was giggling when he killed. <laughs> yeah. No, no, he, Signature he hangs crime. around the scene of the crime, giggling while the police <laughs> investigate. <laughs> Sometimes they find him. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.